Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. Today on The Breakdown, she spent 22 years as a judge in Contra Costa County. Now, Dinah Becton is the county's first female and first African-American district attorney. She is also, by the way, rumored, rumored to be on Governor Gavin Newsom's list to become the state's next attorney general. If and when Javier Becerra is confirmed to be health secretary in the Biden administration, she'll join us to talk about all of that and also what she's doing to achieve her goal of reducing mass incarceration in California. But first, Marisa, uh, speaking of that guy, Javier Becerra, he had a couple hearings this week in the Senate, long awaited. He had one on the health committee, another one with the finance committee. And, you know, for all the expectations and anticipation, it went fairly smoothly for him. It looks like uh, while there were some tough questions on things like abortion, it doesn't look like they're ready to die on that hill to stop his nomination. It's funny, this was framed as a grilling, but I felt like it was not. I mean, were there tough questions on abortion? Essentially, you had people like Mitt Romney saying, well, we're just going to have to agree to disagree. I mean, what what Republicans did sort of hammer on was this question of whether he is up to the job in the sense of his qualifications, right? Should they be putting a doctor in this position instead of an attorney? And, you know, one of the Democrats responded, well, out of the last six HHS secretaries, one was a doctor. And guess who that was? Tom Price, who had to resign in disgrace after being accused of misusing public resources and flying jets everywhere. So, you know. Yeah, there's there's always a little bit of hypocrisy there when it comes to nominees. Uh, You know, I think my favorite line, though, of the hearing was with Javier Becerra was being asked about contraception, that case where we sued the uh, California sued the federal government over the little sisters of the poor and access to abortions. And he said, I never sued any nuns. I'm sure I'm sure that's never been said before in a confirmation hearing. Uh, he, but he wanted to point out, no, I, I sued the federal government. I didn't sue the nuns. I didn't sue the nuns themselves. Yeah, I mean, it does seem like um, as much as there is Republican opposition to this, he will probably get uh, appointed and uh, confirmed by the Senate, um, which, of course, leaves that seat open. Another yes, another appointment we, we, we for Governor wanna Newsom. Ask, we may want to ask our guests about that in just, just a moment. Maybe, maybe. maybe. Um, and of course, uh, you know, the recall and vaccines and COVID never too far from the scene, still top of mind for us. And NPR, in fact, this week had an investigation on One Medical, which is based here in San Francisco, alleging that they were giving vaccines to people who were ineligible to get them, some friends and family of some of the uh, leadership of the company. And it, it just goes to show the sort of almost desperation some people feel, uh, along with entitlement, I suppose, uh, to try to get the vaccine as quickly as they can. It does seem like they're now, I mean, I personally know a lot of people, teachers and seniors and so on, who have gotten the vaccine. So it is finally getting out to people, but not before it uh, has caused and, you know, continues to cause a lot of consternation. And, uh, you know, people are just anxious to get yeah. to get that shot in their arm. Understandably. I mean, I think, and that dovetails into the other kind of big 
conversation topic of the week in California politically, which is around school reopenings and and the questions of teacher vaccines. And I mean, I really do um, think, you know, one thing you and I and our, you know, we've talked about internally as we think about covering these issues is like, this could all change so quickly, right? I mean, it, as more people get vaccinated, as more vaccines get distributed, Johnson & Johnson getting approved this week, you know, it does feel like so much of this stuff that is such a crisis kind of mode right now could really change. Hopefully, I mean, fingers crossed, man, my kids are very loud and downstairs all day long, let me tell you. <laughs> um, so I think that, you know, it's it it feels like a, a pivotal moment. And, and of course, that's going to impact things like the recall and, and what the, what things look like for someone like Governor Newsom. It does. And I, I think, you know, for small businesses who are really suffering in some ways the most during this pandemic, people of color working on front lines and grocery stores, I mean, they can't get vaccinated soon enough. And, you know, the, the economy needs to recover. There's been just looking around San Francisco, there's so many out of business signs and windows. It's really very sad. And, uh, you know, in San Francisco next week, it looks like they're going to begin in restaurant dining again. And it, which, which makes me a little nervous. It's because, you know, there are these variants out there and uh, everyone is not vaccinated. And a lot of these other things like school reopenings are kind of dependent on the rates being at a certain level. So I hope we don't look back in three weeks and say, why did we reopen too quickly? Yeah, I, I am sort of baffled <laughs> by that. I, I am. I mean, I just, I don't get it. We like, we're all, we all seem to agree, no matter what your political party or background that like schools need to be open and that should be the first priority. And yet it's clearly not, it's still not the first priority. And I'm not just dinging the school board, which we could spend probably a lot of time doing here, but you know, like we are, I mean, I just think as a society, it shows that we don't always uh, do a good job of kind of prioritizing the things that we say we need to. Yeah. And you know, a guy, Marzarati, our producer here actually did some reporting on the politics of all this and the teachers union and the pressure that school districts and superintendents and politicians are under. And, you know, in their defense, uh, you know, there is a lot of conflicting information out there as Guy reported, you know, you can ask parents, do you want your kids back to school? And they all say yes, but then they also say they're concerned, you know, about getting right. sick or their parent, their kids getting sick or the teachers getting sick. So, you know, if, if this was if this were easy, it would have been done a long totally. time ago. Well, we saw that this week with the uh, Republican candidates uh, for who who hope to challenge Newsom either in a recall or in twenty two, who have been dinging him on all this. Uh, Kevin Faulkner, former San Diego mayor, mayor, businessman John Cox, also from San Diego, and when asked, well, then would you strip collective bargaining rights from teachers uh, to get schools open? Both said, no, 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 even as they're saying that he's too close to teachers. So, I mean, it is. And I think to your point and, and to that excellent story that Guy did, I really encourage people to check it out. Um, there's no easy answers because this has been, a, a, you know, a, a, a situation that has continued to progress. And also, you know, that is there's so many people are fearful. You you hear about these long timer symptoms. You hear about brain fog. I mean, the hospitals look better, but it's certainly not something, you know, we want to expose people to. No, absolutely not. You certainly want to avoid it if you can. All right, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to be joined by Contra Costa County's top law enforcement official, District Attorney Diana Becton. If you're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. 
Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions. Online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos. And our guest today is the top law enforcement official in Contra Costa County. Dinah Becton spent 22 years as a Superior Court judge in the county. And soon after she retired from the bench, she was picked to fill out the term of the county's previous DA who had resigned amidst a scandal involving misuse of campaign funds. She was then elected to a full four-year term as DA. Dinah Becton, welcome to Political Breakdown. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're good. Glad to have you. So uh, as we said, you spent a long time on the bench. And uh, I'm wondering, had you ever thought of being a prosecutor or a public official, for that matter, you know, in, in, in all that time? Actually, that was about the furthest thing from my mind. <laughs> um, I had a, a wonderful career, frankly. Um, I had, before becoming uh, a lawyer, I'd had an opportunity to work in finance. I worked in housing and community development uh, for some time. And 22 years was, uh, uh, I had a wonderful career. I had amazing opportunities to serve the community uh, in my time as a judge. As you know, I was elected as presiding judge. Mm-hmm. Um, and that gave me a lot of experience as, uh, in terms of budgets and administration as well. And then I had great opportunities to, you know, for example, serve as State Bar Access and Fairness Chair, which was a huge part of my work, and president of the National Association of Women Judges, which again was a significant part of my work. And so I'd had a wonderful time uh, serving the public in that capacity. When the former district attorney uh, resigned, Uh, my phone just started ringing and people wanted to know if I could bring not only my experience administratively, but also a new uh, lens to this thing about criminal prosecution. People had seen uh, for so long all of the tough on crime uh, approaches to criminal justice and came to understand that it wasn't necessarily keeping our community any safer. Mm -hmm. So people were literally calling for an opportunity to see something different and asked me if I would consider putting my name in, which I did. And obviously the rest is history. 12 candidates and I was selected uh, initially in 2017. I ran a highly, in a highly contested race, um, in 20 and one in the primary in 2018. So I'm really pleased and yeah. proud to serve the people of Contra Costa County in this capacity. Yeah, well, we want to get into some of the work you did. But but first, let's go back to the beginning of your life. You were raised in Oakland. I'm not sure if you were born in the Bay Area. Um, yeah. I'm just curious, what was your childhood like in Oakland at the time? What was uh, the city as you called it? I know you, you spent a lot of time also with your grandparents out in Hayward as well, right? You know, I did. So yes, I'm a native Californian. I was born and raised in Oakland, East Oakland, deep east as it is now, I understand, called. And uh, I'm a proud graduate of Castlemont High School. But growing up, I mean, I'm literally growing up in the 50s and 60s. And thank you for mentioning my grandparents. It's kind of interesting. My grandparents, of course, left the, the South and many of the problems that so many people uh, um, uh, people had the Jim Crow South, and but my my grandparents moved to a place uh, called Russell City, 
as a small community uh, right in the heart of Hayward. And uh, so here we were, we lived in East Oakland in a home with our parents during the week. And we spent the weekends uh, with my grandparents out in Russell City. It was like they still lived uh, on the farm in the South, you know. <laughs> um, they had a uh, wood burning stove. Uh, that was how uh, we cooked. We drew water from a well. And, wow. Uh, it was the country. <laughs> wow. the country. And I had an outhouse and all of that. The cows, the, the, my grandmother was a beekeeper and everything from the land. And wow. so cool. was, that's how we lived on the city girls in the day, uh, in the week and country girls in the, in the, on the weekend. And I so, think I, I think I read that your grandparents came from the South, from Louisiana. Is that right? That's right. What brought them here? And did you go back there with them at all? Oh, of course. Yes. You know, one of the things is, is very prevalent in the, in the, life of a, of a black child is to go go back home you know with your parents and with your grandparents and so we did make some pilgrimages there but certainly it was the harsh conditions of the south and um, that is what led to the great migration of so many uh, black families uh, in america to try to leave those places and seek out a better way for their families and their children and is is that why you say your name dinah not diana well i don't know if my dad were here I wish <laughs> clarification on that. I mean, all of my life, you know, my name is spelled. It looks like Diana, and uh, but my dad named me Dinah, huh. and so there we go. <laughs> all right. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you're a lawyer. You end up going on to law school. Um, was there an expectation in your family that you would go on to higher education? Well, I think my my parents, who my grandma grandparents, did not graduate even from high school. Uh, but my parents, of course, did have at least a high school education, but they have always did encourage us to, you know, to go ahead and go forward, although they didn't really understand the systems or the resources or anything like that. They just knew that they wanted us to go to college. But really for me, um, I started out, I think, saying earlier, I am a child of the 50s and the 60s, and there was uh, so many things that were happening during that time. They were like, I don't know how many movements, you know, we had the civil rights movement, which was just major. We had the black power movement coming into the forefront. Uh, we had the Vietnam War going on and the women's rights and gay rights and all these things were going on. I can remember as a little girl watching little Ruby Bridges, you know, mm. walk up to the school and through those angry crowds uh, trying to integrate the schools. And I can remember when Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on the bus. I know I'm dating myself, but these are the things that were going on. We watched the sit-ins and uh, at lunch counters and we couldn't help but ki as kids to, to wonder and to um, question, you know, why people were being treated so differently and why some lives seem to be valued so much more than others. Hmm. You want, the other thing that I saw, though, during that time was how many, how much legislation was driving change. And I knew that a lot of lawyers were, were legislators as well. And that's how I got my dream to want to be a lawyer. Okay. I'd never met any. I saw, I saw Perry Mason on TV. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I just had that dream from the time I was a little girl based on all of those uh, circumstances to want to try to effectuate change in my community. And so you went to uh, Golden Gate Law School, uh, university, and then you graduated and you opened up your own law firm. Uh, what, uh, what kind of law firm was it? What kind of practice? Well, I started out, you know, I, I used to work for the city of Richmond. So I 
uh, was supervisor of the housing finance and development division. And it was there that I went to law school at night. And so when I graduated um, from law school, uh, I wasn't really I wanted to practice law necessarily. Had a career, I really enjoyed what I do, what I was doing for the community at that time. But I decided to do some pro bono work and that was very rewarding. I actually initially went to work with a lawyer out in the Point Richmond area and we became partners and built our firm up. We had about five lawyers, I think, working for us in paralegals, primarily focusing on real estate and construction and housing and landlord tenant uh, law. We did some criminal work as well, uh, criminal defense work, okay. um, but those were the primary areas. And so when I struck out on my own, that was the same work that I carried with me. That's great. And then you were actually appointed by Pete Wilson, a Republican, to the, the bench. How did that come about? Was that something you sought out? Like, I know I know there's often people kind of campaign to get on those lists. How did that come about? It was a slow go for me. You know, one of my mentors and friends is recently appointed um, um, Supreme Court Justice Martin Jenkins was one of my major mentors. But certainly uh, seeing me in court around that time, he would always encourage me to put my my name in 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 to the governor's office for an appointment, and honestly, it took about maybe a year and a half of him sort of poking at me and poking at me, and finally, I, I completed that application and submitted it. Uh, I did receive word back that uh, my application was simply dead on arrival because of my party affiliation, and so you know, it was a slow go for me, just really like. I, people said to me, if you if you change your party, you can get an appointment. But I felt like that didn't, I felt like I would be compromising something because I felt like I am who I am. And if I'm worthy of an appointment, I should receive hmm. that. So, so how, how, what turned it around? Because it went from DOA to on yeah, the bench. DOA. I think what happened is I started getting a lot of support, both on both sides of the aisle. So both uh, we're talking about parties, both Democrats, both Republicans, uh, people really who knew me and knew of my work and my work ethic just really started going to bat for me. And um, I'm grateful for all of those folks who put the word in for me to say, hey, you ought to take a look at this one. So um, I was appointed originally in 1995 and I was appointed by, yes, uh, Governor Pete Wilson. <laughs> so we kind of mentioned at the top that you have come in and, and you know, as a DA talked a lot about, you know, incarceration rates and, and changing the conversation and, and, and really where the rubber meets the road around criminal justice. Is that something that you that kind of garnered on the bench? Were you, did you oversee um, criminal trials where you were like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe these sentences. I'm handing down these sentences or like what? How did your work as a judge inform where you stand now on criminal justice? Yeah, it's probably so so many of the things that you just mentioned. Having the opportunity to serve and serve in many different capacities. For example, uh, in addition to you know working in civil, and I actually supervise that division. I worked in juvenile as well, and I had a chance to see young people who might move from one workload. Like on one hand, one day I'm actually uh, sitting as a judge that's protecting children from adults who might be trying to harm them. The next day, I am hearing cases about kids 
who are now in our criminal justice system are on their way. And so it was heartbreaking because you could see this pattern of people moving from one space to the other. And then when I started doing criminal trials, of course, and some of the same young people I would see there as adults. And so I knew that, that something was broken in our system when people were coming to us in that way. In addition to that, you start noticing that, um, especially as the, the laws really began to become tougher and tougher and longer and longer sentencing, you, you began to realize that there really, you didn't have much say about what could happen in a case, no, no matter what you might thought would be the mm-hmm. just outcome, you really didn't have much say about it because of the way the laws were written. And so it became clear that the prosecutor was really the person in the courtroom with the, with the power. And that's because the prosecutor, you know, has so much decision-making you know, deciding what to charge, who to charge, when to charge, the plea bargaining, and all of that, just a major player in that courtroom. If also, you're... I just want to mention that even, you know, as a judge, I, I really wanted to make sure I was doing things, not only to, to open the pipeline for others, but also to do major things in the community. So we started doing, I uh, started partnering, especially with the faith community, to um, bring certain events uh, to the community. Uh, we did the Know Your Rights so that young mm-hmm. kids could know, you know, how to interact with law enforcement and also have an opportunity to sit down one-on-one and talk with people in law enforcement and we could begin to uh, shape and form a dialogue. And then I also came to understand how detrimental to people um, Re-inter- especially those who are reintegrating into society after serving time away, uh, how detrimental it was to have criminal convictions on their records. And so I also brought those events as well to serve people who, uh, and bring knowledge to the community uh, to let people know of how they could get their records clear. The if you're just... If you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos, and we're talking today with the District Attorney of Contra Costa County, Dinah Becton. Well, let's fast forward a little bit to uh, after the bench. You had retired, and you were then appointed by the county supervisors to become DA. What kind of reception did you get in the office from all these prosecutors, these lifelong prosecutors, from, you know, to you, somebody who had never been one and who had, you know, different thoughts about criminal justice reform and sentencing and all that stuff? Well, it was a bit chilly, let's just say. <laughs> um, it was a challenge to walk into an office. I mean, my primary opponent, uh, was very popular and is very popular uh, in the office. And so um, I think most everyone in the office had supported him in his um, uh, push to become the next prosecutor. And I just frankly was not supposed to be there. <laughs> that's basically, I think, the way it was viewed. So um, I think that's one of the reasons that, you know, um, my collaborative um, leadership style has served me well. Uh, and it, it speaks volumes, I think, think, to the fact that we've been able to get so much done in terms of pushing the needle towards change and towards a system that's fairer and, and just, more just, uh, even in the midst of opposition. I'm curious about the broader reception. We're seeing down in Los Angeles right now, former San Francisco DA, newly elected Los Angeles DA, George Gascon, um, getting uh, – Pushback might be a, a kind term for this. His own deputies have sued him over some of his directives. The statewide DAs association, which I think you're still a part of, uh, joined that lawsuit. Um, 
I mean, what has your sense been when you're talking with the broader district attorney community? Have have you felt embraced? Have ha, do you think that what we're seeing in LA is indicative of bigger fissions within within those groups? Well, I think what's what's what we see, you know, with George Gascon is he's he's doing, you know, what he told the people he would do. <laughs> this is what he promised to do. And that is why the people elected him uh, with a mandate of reform. Uh, and so, and, and I think it's very clear right now that the majority of American people want criminal justice reform. He promised evidence-driven uh, policies that are reflective of proven research. Um, he promised that he would roll back all of the results of being tough on crime and the long sentences that have been imposed. And he's doing what the people have elected him to do. And so, yeah, I I think it's unfortunate that we we seem to have this, you know, riff where we've had the the largest association of prosecutors in our state, you know, line up with aligned prosecutors. Uh, I think it's a, I I really don't like the the precedent that it has uh, set. because really and truly, uh, the people elect us to use our discretion. Uh, and I think um, when the prosecutor is doing what, what the people have asked him to do, you know, it is a very difficult type of to be in, to have those within your office and within the larger community. Yeah, I'm sure you have to kind of like watch your back. Um, I wonder, you know, from the other side of the political spectrum, you know, thinking of Kamala Harris, she was the first black, first female DA in San Francisco, then AG for the state. And she was under a lot of pressure from some of the liberal advocacy groups, you know, who saw her as, you know, one of them and expected her to embrace the things that they cared most about in terms of, you know, police uh, reform and that sort of stuff. Did you, Have you felt that as well uh, in your role as DA, sort of getting pressure from both sides, you know, the career prosecutors in the office, but also the community? Well, yes, of course. Um, and, and I think one of one of the things that's been important to me is to regularly meet. I mean, there is a thing in Contra Costa County called the Community Accountability Table. And so uh, as opposed to, you know, so and, and they're advocates, right? And their job is to push the envelope on all of the things that they think will move us closer uh, into criminal justice reform. And so I, I appreciate those voices at the table. And I meet with them just as I meet with any other group in our community to hear their voices, to hear their input, and to see there are many, oftentimes many very good suggestions that we're able to implement. And so I think keeping an open door uh, and understanding that everybody has a role to play in pushing change in our community. So we just mentioned Kamala Harris. She obviously was Attorney General before U.S. Senator. Uh, Now Javier Becerra is going to probably be moving to Washington, D.C., and we have heard your name come up repeatedly on the uh, short list for attorney general. Is that a job you want? And, um, yeah, what, what would you bring to it? Well, right now, I would say that I'm, I have my hands full right here in Contra Costa County, so <laughs> there's uh, so much work that we started and that we're going to continue to do. But I do think that it's in, it, it is a, quite an honor to be uh, considered uh, consistently and to be on the list and and to be considered uh, by the governor. Uh, I support uh, whatever decision the governor uh, decides to make. I think what would be important is to bring a uh, reform uh, lens. And I think that there's just several things that um, I would hope that 
are of importance to uh, selecting that next attorney general. Uh, one would be um, a, a person who, I think in this climate, you know, everybody is asking for a greater oversight uh, of our police agencies, uh, especially and about reducing uh, racial profiling and excessive force and other behaviors that have, uh, for a few, have undermined the credibility of a profession. And so we really would be looking for that as well. I think it would be important to support and provide resources to uh, achieve greater transparency, you know, into police misconduct through SB 1421 and maybe other measures. And um, also robust transparency with respect to other things that are so important to prosecutors like Brady uh, obligations. Um, and so those are the kinds of things that I think, uh, and, and also willing to use the power of that office to support and push legislative changes uh, that can be so very important to, to criminal justice reform as Might well. Might be a little further than, than some of uh, the AGs in the past have gone, huh? Yeah. Well, Diana <laughs> Becton, thank you so much. Martinez isn't that far from Sacramento, right? I mean, it's just like, uh, just like a half right an hour away. commute. Come on. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. I appreciate you having me. Thank you. And that does it for this edition of Political Breakdown, a production of KQED Public Radio. Our producer is Guy Marzarati. Our engineer is Katie McMurrin. KQED's team includes Holly Kernan, Ethan Tobin Lindsay, Vinny Tong, Erica Aguilar, and Jonathan Blakely. We'd love to know who you'd like to hear on the show in the weeks ahead. You can tweet your suggestions to me. I'm at MLagos. Or to me. I'm at Scott Schaefer. Send us some good ideas and we'll take it from there. Thanks so much for listening. Stay safe out there. Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now.